Thank you, Hugh. Um, If you have a Bible, can you please open it to Ezekiel chapter 4? Ezekiel chapter 4, it's on page 832 of the church Bibles. You are uh, joining us in the middle of a series that we're doing, looking through the book of Ezekiel. And if you weren't here last week when we begun this series, um, I think it's really worthwhile to listen to it online, uh, just to kind of get into it and get a bit of context. Um, We're going to read chapters 4 and 5 in a minute, but what I want to do is what I did last week and just give a little bit of historical context um, for those of you that weren't there. We're not going to do this every week, but it's really important and really helpful to understand what is going on in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet who spoke God's word around 600 years before Jesus. So at this time, God's people were the nation of Israel. They were the people that were given special promises by God that from them salvation would come to the nations. From them, the the kingdom of God would be established. And we were saying last week that the thing that made Israel so special and so unique was that in her capital city of Jerusalem was the temple. And the temple was the place where the glory of God resided. Think of it like this. Jerusalem is the royal city. The temple is the palace of God. And the holy of holies, that special room in the temple, is the throne room of the glory of the Lord. That was where God dwelt amongst his people. That was the connecting point between God and humanity. But at the time of Ezekiel, Israel is in a real crisis. You see, even though they had the temple, for hundreds of years, this nation had rebelled against God and done some of the most uh, horrible things imaginable. And so as an act of judgment in 597 BC, God sent the mighty Babylonian army to Israel's capital city of Jerusalem. And the Babylonians did something to Jerusalem that no army had ever done before. They invaded the city, they sacked it, and they took most of its residents off into exile in Babylon. There you go, that's my four-year animation degree there paying off, um, including a young priest by the name of Ezekiel. He was one of these prisoners that was taken off into Babylon. And so as Ezekiel prophesies, as he speaks God's words, it's as a prisoner in Babylon to exiles in Babylon. Now, here's what you need to understand about this time. Everyone thought that because the Babylonians hadn't completely destroyed Jerusalem, because there were still some people left behind, and because the temple was still standing, that God must still be there. He must still be in Jerusalem. And so the survival of Jerusalem was the basis for all Israelite hope. That's where they put their hope in, the survival of this city. But God is going to speak through Ezekiel to say that he's going to send the Babylonians back to this apostate city and they are going to completely eradicate Jerusalem and they are going to level the temple and God's glory is going to leave. God is about to 
walk out on his own people. And the whole book of Ezekiel then is asking this key question, where will God's glory go? We'll see that the answer to that is is tied into these wonderful future promises of restoration. Um, But for now, God wants them to be clear, it will not be in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city that is under the inescapable judgment of God. And for five years, that was the message Ezekiel preached to the exiles. For five years, he was telling them one thing, judgment is coming, judgment is coming. Now, chapter four, let's look at how he conveys this message of judgment. We're going to read chapter four and five. Son of man, that's the title that God gives to Ezekiel. Now, son of man, take a clay tablet, put it in front of you and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it. Erect siege works against it, build a ramp up to it, set up camps against it, and put battering rams around it. Then take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and turn your face towards it. It will be under siege, and you shall besiege it, and this will be a sign to the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side and put the sin of the house of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have signed you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days you will bear the sin of the house of Israel. After you have finished this, lie down again, this time on your right side, and bear the sin of the house of Judah. I have assigned you 40 days, a day for each year. Turn your face towards the siege of Jerusalem and with bared arm prophesy against her. I will tie you up with ropes so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have finished the days of your siege. Take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt. Put them in a storage jar and use them to make bread for yourself. You are to eat it during the 390 days you lie on your side. Weigh out 20 shekels of food to eat each day and eat it at set times. Also measure out a sixth of a hin of water and drink it at set times. Eat the food as you would a barley cake. Bake it in the sight of the people using human excrement for fuel. The Lord said, in this way the people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I will drive them. Then I said, not so, sovereign Lord. I have never defiled myself from my youth until now. I have never eaten anything found dead or torn by wild animals. No unclean meat has ever entered my mouth. Very well, he said. I will let you bake your bread over cow manure instead of human excrement. He then said to me, son of man, I will cut off the food supply in Jerusalem. The people will eat rationed food in anxiety and drink rationed water in despair, for food and water will be scarce. They will be appalled at the sight of each other and will waste away because of their sin. Now, son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor to shave your head and your beard. Then take a set of scales and divide up the hair. When the days of your siege come to an end, burn a third of the hair with fire inside the city. Take a third and strike it with the sword all around the city and scatter a third to the wind for I will pursue them with drawn sword. But take a few strands of hair 
and tuck them away in the folds of your garment. Again, take a few of these and throw them into the fire and burn them up. A fire will spread from there to the whole house of Israel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the center of the nations with countries all around her. Yet in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and the countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You have been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations because of all your detestable idols. I will do to you what I have never done before and will never do again. Therefore, in your midst, fathers will eat their children and children will eat their fathers. I will inflict punishment on you and will scatter all your survivors to the winds. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, because you have defiled my sanctuary with your vile images and detestable practices, I myself will withdraw my favor. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. A third of your people will die of the plague or perish by famine inside you. A third will fall by the sword outside your walls. And a third I will scatter to the winds and pursue with drawn swords. Then my anger will cease and my wrath against them will subside and I will be avenged. And when I have spent my wrath upon them, they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal. I will make you a ruin and a reproach among the nations around you in the sight of all who pass by. You will be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and an object of horror to the nations around you when I inflict punishment on you in anger and in wrath with stinging rebuke I the Lord have spoken when I shoot you with my deadly deadly and destructive arrows of famine I will shoot to destroy you I will bring more and more famine upon you and cut off your supply of food. I will send famine and wild beasts against you and they will leave you childless. Plague and bloodshed will sweep through you and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Well, let's pray. We need God's help as we look at this very difficult um, passage in Ezekiel. Let's pray. Father, We pray that you would, by your spirit, give us insight and understanding to your word. Father, may we not be like the house of Israel at this time that refused to listen to you. But may we listen to what you are saying through the prophet Ezekiel. And may we take very seriously the reality of your anger and your judgment not so that we can be led to hopeless despair but so that we can be led to Jesus as the only place of refuge Father help us to understand this word help us not to diminish it not to dismiss it and not to downplay it but may we take very seriously what you are saying to your church this evening In Jesus' name.
Amen. Well, what do we do with passages like that in the Bible? Passages that speak of the judgment and the wrath of God. There's surprisingly quite a lot of them. Do we get embarrassed thinking, I'm glad I didn't invite my friend to church tonight? Do we dismiss it as maybe irrelevant to us? Or or do we just try and and downplay it and, and justify it? There's a great um, Johnny Cash song that I think was released after he died. Uh, It's immensely popular. Uh, On YouTube, the video has 73 million views. And what makes it so surprising is is, um, the song's subject matter. The song is called God's Gonna Cut You Down. And if you watch the video, you'll see that it's a collection of these A-list celebrities, very well-known and famous people, and they're all singing these words, as sure as God made black and white, what's done in the darkness will be brought to the light. You can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time. But sooner or later, God will cut you down. It's a very sobering song. And yet I wonder how many of the celebrities in that video took it seriously. Or how many of the 73 million viewers take that seriously as a reality that is going to happen. God's going to cut you down. Do we take that seriously? Do you know, when it comes to messages of God's judgment, the tendency is to think, well, it's not for me. Uh, here in Ezekiel God is trying to warn his people and he does so using a variety of different ways he's trying to warn them that he is coming and he's going to cut them down he is going to wipe out Jerusalem and do you know what the people at Ezekiel's time thought about that message we don't have to speculate if you read Ezekiel chapter 33 we're told exactly what they thought they thought Ezekiel was entertaining and they viewed him as if he was just there to entertain them And they didn't take it seriously. And God tried again and again to get these people to listen. That judgment is coming. But they wouldn't listen. And then it happened. I said last week that the book of Ezekiel really stretches our knowledge of God. And whilst God is unimaginably kind and gracious and loving. We need to realize something. God is dangerous. This is a passage in which Ezekiel is trying to get the exiles to understand one thing. Judgment is coming and you cannot stop it. And so how do we apply this passage then to us today in the church? Well firstly, we're to view this as a warning. We're to view this as a warning to all people about the future judgment of God. Just have a look at chapter 5 verse 14. God's saying to Jerusalem, I will make you a ruin and a reproach among the nations around you in the sight of all who pass by. You will be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and an object of horror to the nations. What God did to Jerusalem was to be a warning. A warning to all people of the, of the wrath of God. And that means all of us here. The Bible does speak of a day that will come at the end of time 
which it calls Judgment Day, a day where Jesus will judge all the nations of the world. So let's not look at this passage in Ezekiel and think, oh, this is God of the Old Testament stuff. Jesus talks of judgment, and when Jesus speaks of judgment, it's infinitely, and I don't use that word lightly, it's infinitely more terrifying than anything that we see here in Ezekiel. No one's going to be innocent on that day. All the wrong that we have said and thought and done will be met with justice. And if we don't have a savior, there's the reality of eternal hell. And so we'll see in Ezekiel 4 and 5 a warning. A warning that that is not there to lead us to despair, but to lead us to Christ. For Jesus came for this very reason, to rescue us from judgment, to rescue us from God's anger so that we can stand blameless and without fault on that final day. But secondly, we're to use these chapters as a warning not just to everyone about the day that is to come, but a warning, I think, specifically to the church. Do you know what the most shocking thing about this is? It's not what's said, but it's who Ezekiel's saying it to. This is God's people. This is God's pronouncement of judgment on his own people. Why is he so angry? Have a look at, we get glimpses here, we'll see more of it next week, but have a look at chapter 5, verse 5. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with, all, with countries all around her. So this is Jerusalem. This is God's chosen city, his palace. These are his special people. They were set in the center of the nations to show the world that God is good and God is great. And what does she do instead? Verse 6, yet in her wickedness. She has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and the countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. You see, rather than listening to God and God's word, Jerusalem had turned their back on God. And they did so by turning away from his word. Rather than proclaiming God's glory to the nations through their, their obedience to God's laws, They profaned his glory among the nations. You see, God staked his reputation on this city. And they did such horrible things that even the pagan nations looked better than Jerusalem. And they dared to presume that because they were God's chosen people, they could do what they want without any consequences. Jesus does teach us that there is a harsher judgment for those who should know better. In that passage in Matthew 7, he he states that there will be many who call him Lord, who will be cast from his presence. People who are in the church who will face judgment. Why? Well, firstly, because they looked to themselves. Did we not do this? Did we not do that? And because, as Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 7, they did not build their lives upon the foundation of God's word. And so when a church or a mainline denomination in this country willfully turns its back on the word of God, that's a dreadful thing. 
And we must speak out, not in a self-righteous manner as if we're any better, but out of fear. Because to reject God's word is to reject God. Just as God staked his reputation on Israel, now God stakes his reputation on the church. And it's not good to tarnish that. And individually we need to ask, are, are we refusing to give up that one part of our life to what God's word says? The church has to be distinct from the world and the way it does so, the way it proclaims his glory is through holiness and obedience to his word. Now here's what we're going to see from Ezekiel. We're going to see four signs that Ezekiel does. Four signs of judgment that carry with them a, a very severe warning. The brick the binding, the bread, and the barber. And as we look at these signs, we'll see something, I hope, of the, of the horror of sin and the reality of God's anger against sin. But then we're going to close by looking at one sign of judgment that brings not a severe warning, but certain hope. There is an unparalleled love in God. Make no mistake, there is an unparalleled love in God, but we won't ever understand it without first of all understanding the judgment that we deserve. See, it's only when we ever get serious about God's anger that we can really start to get serious about God's love. What do we do then with passages like this in the Bible? We do what Israel did not do, we listen. So four signs of judgment that bring severe warning. First sign, the brick. Um, and uh, our translation, it says tablet, which is, doesn't work for my four-point alliteration. Um, but it is a brick that Ezekiel is called to use in verse 1 to 3. He's called to take this brick and he's to draw a picture of the city of Jerusalem on it. I'm guessing that Jerusalem had a, a, a quite a prominent skyline with the, the temple mount in the middle and the temple at the top. So he probably drew a portrait of Jerusalem, a profile of the city. Can imagine like Dundee with the, the law in the middle. It's very obvious what it is. And so as he is there with the, the exiles walking by, he is drawing this picture on this large brick. And then he does something unusual. He starts to make little models. A little catapult, a little siege ramp, a little battering ram. And he sets them all around this picture of Jerusalem that he's put on this brick. And then Ezekiel grabs a big frying pan. And you can imagine the exiles gathering round thinking, what on earth is Ezekiel doing here? And he grabs this frying pan. And I imagine at this point the exiles are watching him and they're thinking that he's going to take this pan and he's going to crush this little model army that he's made and he's going to declare to the exiles that God is going to destroy the Babylonians and they'll all cheer. But that's not what he does. Verse 3, he stands and he looks down on the city of Jerusalem and he just puts the pan up in front of his face. A powerful symbol that God no longer looks with favor upon the city. That there is an iron barrier between God and his people. This is the original iron curtain. And that is what sin and that is what rebellion does. It separates from God. It creates an impassable barrier. And unless his wrath is removed, that barrier will be there forever. 
second sign Ezekiel is called to perform is the binding in verse 4 to 8. Look at what Ezekiel has to do. Verse 4, lie on your left side, put the sin of the house of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have signed you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days you will bear the sin of the house of Israel. Now if you were to walk by Ezekiel's little model of Jerusalem, you would have found him lying beside it. We're told in verse 8 that he was bound with cords as he was lying, looking towards this little model city of Jerusalem. Every day, as the exiles are going about doing their business by the rivers of Babylon, they would walk past Ezekiel day one, day two, Day 40, day 100, day 250, day 300. For 390 days, Ezekiel is lying there bound on his left side, looking towards Jerusalem. And all of this, we are told, is to symbolize the the length of time that they had sinned against God, a day for each year, for 390 years, from the downfall of Solomon to the destruction of the temple, for 390 years, Israel had rebelled against the Lord. Imagine how sore that would be to lie on your side for 390 days, a powerful reminder of the pain and the hurt that Israel had caused God. See, here's the thing about God's anger. God does not fly off the handle in rage. God's anger is never off the cuff. We struggle with with this idea of God being angry because we foolishly think God's just like me. But our anger is often sinless and not justified. Sinful and not justified. His anger is sinless and justified. God is patient. As Exodus 33 says, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's 390 years slow. 390 years of of constant warning and constant pleading. 390 years of, of helping and caring for these people. His people. 390 years of calling them to turn away from their sin and come back to him. I don't know if you've ever felt the pain of rejected love. It's one of the worst things. And yet for 390 years God felt this pain bound to a people who couldn't care less about him. That's what sin is like against God. It's this personal rejection. And then Ezekiel's told that after he's done his 390 day stint, he's to turn over onto his other side for 40 days with his arm pointed out towards Jerusalem. And the number 40 there is probably a symbolic number representing the 40 day period that the Israelites wandered around the desert as a kind of um, picture of this 40 year correction period that the uh, Israelites will spend in exile. You see, the judgment of God is is not quickly wrought. Do you know, it's Jesus Jesus who promises that he will come back to judge the world at the end of time. But why has Jesus not come back yet? 2,000 years is a long time. Why has Jesus not come back? 2 Peter 3 tells us, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, 
as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus hasn't come back yet because he's given people time to turn to him and be saved. And some of you maybe have been coming to church for a long time. I don't know. And you've been hearing that you need to turn to Jesus to be saved. And the reason he hasn't come back is because he is waiting. His wick is long, but it does have an end. And we need to beware the wrath of a patient God. Third sign we see here in Ezekiel is the bread. Chapter 4, verse 9 to 17. During this time, as Ezekiel's lying there on his side for 390 days, um, God gives him another sign. This time, he is to make bread from uh, very meager rations of wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt. I have no idea what that is. Um, Maybe somebody can tell me afterwards, but apparently the amount given for that um, in verse 10 and 11 is not really enough to live on. Eventually you would die from this. These are meager rations because this is what you would have to eat in the event of a siege. And Jerusalem is about to be put under siege. Do you know what? Just try and think. What would Ezekiel have looked like over these 390 days? Again, what a powerful image. Verse 17, we're told that... That the people will be appalled at the sight of each other and will waste away because of their sin. And Ezekiel would have slowly deteriorated over this time as he's getting more and more hungry, living off these very basic rations. His deterioration is a symbolic picture of the horror of sin and judgment. It really is that bad. Maybe the reason we don't take God's judgment seriously is because we don't take sin seriously. Make no mistake, everyone here may be nice and polite. The truth is we're all messed up sinners here. We are. And if you could really see my heart, well, I guess unclean would be a fitting word to describe it. Poor Ezekiel, just to make matters worse. God gets him to cook his food over human dung in verse 12. Ezekiel's been through a lot trying to convey this. Um, But at this point, it's too much. And it's not just because that's disgusting, which it is. Um, You know why Ezekiel doesn't want to do this? Because holiness matters to Ezekiel. Unlike Israel, holiness matters to him. And he doesn't want to be defiled. He doesn't want to be spiritually unclean. And so God says, okay, well, you can use cow dung. Thank you very much. And all of this conveys the severity, the uncleanness, and the poison of sin. Not listening to God really is that detestable. Final sign that Ezekiel has to do is the barber in chapter 5, verse 1 to 4. Ezekiel's asked then to take a sword, and he's to use it like a barber's razor, shaving his head and his beard. Now, I mean, think about what he looks like already, given his diet. And this is really significant. Do you know why? In Leviticus 25... Priests were not allowed to shave. Ezekiel is a priest. 
And so what's Ezekiel doing? As he, as he grabs his beard and as he gets the sword and shaves it, as he grabs his hair and he starts tearing chunks out of it, it's a powerful picture again of the end of the priesthood. See, a priest was to represent God to the people and Israel herself, Israel is described as a priesthood to the nations. She was to represent God to the world. But she had misrepresented him and so God cuts it apart. When we don't live in accordance with God's word, we misrepresent him. In some ways, it's one of the worst things we can do. If we know Jesus, we're to live like we know Jesus. As Jesus says, to to those who know much, much will be required. And the privilege of knowing the gospel carries with it the responsibility of living the gospel. But Israel didn't do that. And so her priestly status is torn to shreds. And Ezekiel grabs all his hair that he shaved off his head and and he weighs it out into thirds. One third he puts inside his little model city of Jerusalem and then he throws a match in it and sets it on fire. Saying that one third of the people left in Jerusalem will face the fire of God's judgment. One third he takes and he puts it and scatters it outside the city and he grabs his sword and he starts chopping it up. Because one third of the people will be outside the city and will face the sword of God's judgment. And one third he grabs and he scatters it to the wind because the people will be scattered throughout the nations. And then he takes one small bit of hair and he tucks it in his robe. It's the one note of hope that there is in this passage. One tiny remnant of people will be kept close to God's heart. But even then in verse 4 we're told that some of them will face the fire of judgment. These great nation, this great promise, reduced to a tiny pitiful remnant in Babylon. Do you see how dreadful this is? Look at verse 16 of chapter 5. God says, when I shoot at you with my deadly and destructive arrows of famine, I will shoot to destroy you. I will bring more and more famine upon you and cut off your supply of food. I will send famine and wild beasts against you and they will leave you childless. Plague and bloodshed will sweep through you. I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. You see, when God says something, it happens. And it did. Five years after Ezekiel did this in 586 B.C., Babylon came back to Jerusalem and they finished the job. They laid siege to the city. The people starved. They resorted to cannibalism. The houses were burned and they were put to the sword. And it wasn't Babylon that did it. It was the arrows of God's anger. And just as God's word came true then, so will Jesus' promise of judgment at the end of time. We're told in Revelation 5 that the eternal wrath of the Lamb of God is infinitely more terrifying than any Babylonian siege. So, what hope then is there? There's lots of hope in the book of Ezekiel. Lots of hope that will come. But let's close with this final point. One sign of God's judgment that brings sure and certain hope. Look, this is not easy God does get angry. 
He really hates sin. He really hates evil in all its forms. And what we don't, often don't understand is that if he is to be loving and if he is to be good, he has to be angry. God's anger is his goodness responding to evil. The alternative to an angry God is an indifferent God, an immoral one. How wicked would he be if he did nothing about evil and sin? But here's the thing. Despite our sin, God does not want to punish us. Despite how deserved it is, God does not want to punish us. God is not a two-dimensional character. he's He's infinitely more complex than us. He's not just angry. His anger is slow and it's filled with hurt and it's filled with pain and it's never absent from his goodness and his love. He takes no pleasure in what happens. In fact, this is what he says later on in Ezekiel 33. The people are saying, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us and we rot away because of them. How can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I desire the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? It's a way out of this, but it's not through us. The call of all of this is that these people will turn back to him. That's what he wants. Turn back to me and live. Why will you die? And so the latter third of the the book of Ezekiel is just filled with these unbelievable promises of hope and of restoration and of forgiveness to a people who have rebelled against him. But how does God remove and punish sin without remove and punishing us? That's the key question going all the way through the Old Testament. And it's the conundrum that Jesus came to solve. How? By his death on the cross. You see, the cross is a sign of judgment given by God to a rebellious world. But this time, rather than it being a proclamation of judgment on us, it's a proclamation of judgment on Jesus, like we were seeing this morning in in John 18. He drinks the cup of God's wrath. Because Jesus, as he died, steps into our place, takes our punishment, takes our judgment. And do you see, when we look at passages like Ezekiel chapter 4 and 5, it reminds us of the terror of the judgment that Jesus took on our behalf. You see, all that anger for sin and rebellion was poured on him. Think about what we've just seen here and how how that helps us understand the cross. That iron barrier that Ezekiel had. On the cross, Jesus was separated from God so that we could be brought in. The iron curtain was put in place. That's why he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken in our place so that we could be brought in. So that we could have access to God free from sin. Think of that meal that Ezekiel had to eat and the picture of the uncleanness. On the cross, Jesus took all that is wrong and unclean and filthy and detestable in my life. 
and he became it. He became my sin. God punished him for my sin so that I could have his righteousness. So that I could be clean. Cleansed for all eternity. Think of that symbol with Ezekiel's hair as he burnt it and chopped it and scattered it to the wind. On the cross, it was Jesus who suffered the fire of God's anger. It was Jesus who experienced the sword of God's judgment. It was Jesus who was cast away from his presence outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And he went through it all to save us. So that we, as objects of wrath, could be adopted as children of God. Do you see, it's only when you start to take God's anger seriously that you'll ever start to take God's love seriously. Any church that does not listen and does not preach judgment does not preach the gospel. If there's no judgment, there's no gospel. If there's no gospel, there's no hope. We need to listen when we come to passages like this. We need to take it seriously. And when we do, we'll be able to sing all the more potently of his love and his grace that we who deserve judgment have not been given that, but have been given everything in Christ. We'll be able to sing these words, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make this wretch his treasure. Let me pray. Father, help us to listen to your word, not to be like the exiles who viewed this as simple entertainment, who dismissed it and thought it wasn't relevant to them, who doubted it because they trusted in themselves and built their lives upon false hopes. Help us to listen so that we can build our lives upon the certain hope that is Jesus. May we use passages like this to reflect on your anger and your wrath. May that motivate us to tell others to flee from the wrath to come and to find refuge in Christ. May it drive us to understand the torment of the cup of wrath that Jesus drank on our behalf so that we could be free and loved. Why will you die? Turn back and live. Help us always to be turning to you because in you we can have life both now and for all eternity. Thank you that our hope is not built upon anything to do with us or our own righteousness but our hope is built completely upon the finished and complete work of Jesus, your son. Thank you that we are so safe and so secure in his arms. Help us to be serious about your anger so that we can be serious about your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's finish by singing that hymn, How, Great the, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Um, we'll stand and sing as the band begin to play.